The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, we're going to read Psalm 95 here. Let's see here, short little psalm. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That uh, follows on. It's quoted quite heavily in the book of Hebrews. Uh, We'll be in the book of Hebrews for our Thursday night Bible study in 62 or three years. And when we get there, (laughs) you will absolutely love it. You will absolutely, the word today by most uh, translations is capitalized. And there's a reason why they do that. And uh, it uh, is making a great theological point for us. So read that. Read the book of Hebrews. And if you've got any questions, write them down. And when we're a little bit older, we'll go through it. <laughs> Actually, email me anytime. Let's see here. Um, we're in Leviticus 7, verses 22 through 38 today. It's entitled The Mediator's Duties, Part 3. And uh, I'm going to mention the word fat about 5,000 times in this sermon. Uh, it's just something that this it, it focuses on quite a great deal here, and uh, I'm not going to tell you what the symbolism is for it anymore, as I have for many of these sermons, because every time we have something that pictures something else, always Christ, I explain that. And today, like last week, I'm going to not give you all that symbolism, or the sermon would be 32 pages long. And uh, so, yeah, but uh, uh, fat symbolizes abundance, all right? And then the different types of fat symbolize different things as well, where it comes from, the fat from the liver, the fat from the loins, each one of them prefigures a different type of Christ's work. And so that's the kind of thing I won't be doing today. If you're lost and you uh, don't remember, just go back and watch those sermons or read them online and uh, uh, all the information is there. But here we go, Leviticus seven twenty-two through 38. I had the page and then I closed it. So 22, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, You shall not eat any fat of ox or sheep or goat. And the fat of an animal that dies naturally and the fat of what is torn by wild beasts may be used in any other way, but you shall by no means eat it. For whoever eats the fat of the animal of which men offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, the person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall not eat any blood in any of your dwellings, whether of bird or beast." Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
Speak to the children of Israel, saying, He who offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hands shall bring the offerings made by fire to the Lord. The fat with the breast he shall bring, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. Then the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his son's. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. He among the sons of Aaron, who offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat, shall have the right thigh for his part. For the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering I have taken from the children of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons from the children of Israel by a statute forever." This is the consecrated portion for Aaron and his sons from the offerings made by fire to the Lord on the day when Moses presented them to minister to the Lord as priests. The Lord commanded this to be given to them by the children of Israel on the day that he anointed them by a statute forever throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the consecrations, and the sacrifice of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day when he commanded the children of Israel to offer their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. This is now our 10th Leviticus sermon, and it completes the rules and regulations for the laws concerning the sacrificial offerings. What may have seemed confusing in many of the verses when we started have actually all come together to form a very harmonious and logical set of instructions for the people to abide by and for the priests to effectively administrate in their duties. There is enough information available so that error should be avoided, but there is not so much detail that the people would be bogged down with a never-ending stream of rules and regulations. What is needed for those verses which leave things unstated is a dose of common sense in order to fill in the blanks. Unfortunately, common sense is often lacking in the world. And so by the time of Jesus, the leaders of Israel had added in rule upon rule and precept upon precept. Instead of just following the spirit and intent of the law, there was a great burden laid upon the people if they wanted to be considered righteous in the eyes of the leaders. At least the law, which was already impossible to fully obey, offered the people grace and mercy in several important ways. But even with these allowances, the law could never perfect anyone. We have seen this time and time and time again in the various offerings which have been detailed for us. If the people could have been perfected, then the offerings would have ceased with the perfection of the people. Such never happened. But then came Jesus. He didn't need to be perfected because he was already perfect. These types and shadows were meant to lead the people to him, and in him they were fulfilled. Now, through him, something so, so much better is available to us. Our text verse comes from Hebrews chapter 8. It's the sixth verse. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he also is mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. The mediator's duties have been carefully laid out and explained. We've already seen some of the things which were granted to them for the conduct of their duties. Today, we will see some more of the benefits they received because of the accomplishment of those duties. The Lord granted the priest particular parts of the offerings for their maintenance. As they had no inheritance of their own, the Lord was their inheritance, and thus they shared in the Lord's portion. Today, the same is true. 
Those who minister to the Lord generally receive their livelihood from their service in the ministry. Unfortunately, and not to start the sermon on a bad note, the priests of Israel took advantage of the offerings that they had received. This was noted even before the time of the kings. In 1 Samuel 2, the sons of Eli, the high priest, are noted as doing exactly this. In this, it says that the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. Even worse, in the next chapter, the Lord said, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. What a sad commentary on those who should have been the preeminent examples of holiness to the people of Israel. Thank God that our high priest is the perfect high priest who we can trust completely, rely on with full confidence, and look to for help in our time of need. And for those who minister under him, let us pray that they will do their very best to do so with integrity and honesty at all times. Our lives are short and eternity ain't. Let us not squander the future by filling ourselves up now with greediness and a self-serving attitude. Let us look to Jesus and allow him to be our one and only mediator and our true peace offering to God, an offering which continues to be prefigured in the final verses of chapter 7, along with some other important details concerning the law of Moses, all of which ultimately point to Christ. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is the fat and the blood. It's verses 22 through 27. Verse 22, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, As normal, these words introduce a new section of thought for Moses to write and then relay to the people. However, this section and the next are still a continuation of the law of the peace offering. What will be explained to him now builds upon the single verse found in Leviticus 3, verse 17, which said, This shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. In all your dwellings, you shall eat neither fat nor blood. Now, a more detailed explanation of that will be given. The peace offering is the only one of these offerings that is at least partly consumed by the offerer. Therefore, there must be prohibition stated and defined at this time in order to ensure that the offering would not become defiled and thus rejected by the Lord. Verse 23, speak to the children of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any fat of ox or sheep or goat. Moses is told to instruct the children of Israel concerning the eating of fat. What is understood, but which could easily be misunderstood without examining the entire passage, is that this is speaking of the fat already detailed in the offerings each of which pointed clearly to the workings of Jesus Christ. It is for this reason that the particular fat is specified. In other words, the prohibition is not speaking of all fat, but just the particular fat of the offerings. The eating of other fat is not forbidden. This begins to be further defined right in this verse with the words of ox or sheep or goat. These are the three types of animals which were acceptable as offerings to the Lord. And so the particular fat of these types of animals, which was offered on the altar, is what is specified. It means that even when such an animal was not offered as a sacrifice, this particular fat was still not to be eaten by the people. If it belonged to the altar of the Lord in a sacrifice, then it was not to be eaten at any time or at any other place during a meal. Any fat which was separated from the flesh in this way was forbidden. 
but other fat which is of the animal is not forbidden. Again, the entire context needs to be understood in order to see this. These things are known by other passages where non-sacrificial animals are mentioned, but the fat is not. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 12. It says, however, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, whatever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. Further, the other fat which is in these animals is not included in this mandate. Deuteronomy 32 shows that the fat of sacrificial animals, meaning the uh, ox and the sheep and the goat, was eaten, meaning that is other than the part which is specified and reserved for the Lord. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 32. He made him ride in the heights of the earth, that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock, with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats, with the choicest wheat, and you drank wine, the blood of grapes." As always, if we can simply remember that the Lord is highlighting and foreshadowing the work of Christ in these verses, they will continue to make sense. Why would he care about the fat in this way unless he was ultimately showing us the work of the Lord in it? He has no nose. He doesn't need to eat. And the same type of fat is found in other animals in which the prohibition does not exist. But because Christ is seen in the offerings, then minute care and attention is given. Verse 24, and the fat of an animal that dies naturally and the fat of what is torn by wild beasts may be used in any other way, but you shall by no means eat of it. This verse seems superfluous at first. The meat of an animal that died naturally was forbidden to be eaten. This will be seen later in Leviticus 22. Here's what it says. Whatever dies naturally or is torn by beasts, he shall not eat it. To defile himself with it, I am the Lord. However, despite this being a law, it was understood that it could happen. And so a provision for someone who ate such meat was given as well. That's seen in Leviticus 17, verse 15. And every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether he's a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. Understanding this, the prohibition of this verse that we're looking at makes complete sense. Even if a person were to eat the meat of one of these three types of animals that died naturally, or one that died because it was torn by beasts, the particular fat which would otherwise belong to the altar of the Lord was still forbidden. However, the prohibition only extended to consumption. The fat could be used for making soap, candles, medicine, lubricant, or whatever else fat can be used for, but it was not to be eaten. That which pictures Christ belongs to God alone, and it is forbidden for man to participate in it through consumption. Nothing is said anywhere of the fat of birds, and nothing is mentioned concerning that in relation to the offerings. Again, only those things which prefigure Christ are relative to what is being mentioned here. And you've seen what all of that fat and all of these other things signify, as I said, in other sermons. Verse 25, for whoever eats the fat of the animal of which men offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, the person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. This verse is obviously referring to the type of animal, not only the fat of those which are offered. If the animal was offered, the fat would have been handled by the priest in the manner prescribed by the rites given to the priests. 
Thus, the verse would be superfluous to state again. But in saying this now, it defines what fat is acceptable, what fat is not acceptable, and in what type of animal the categories of fat are defined. Anything not defined here would then, by default, be acceptable to eat. The verses are stated logically in order for there to be no mistake. But this is only true so far as all of the verses are taken as a whole and in context. Just keep reminding yourself, because I know this can be tedious with all of this information, everything points to Christ, and God does not want us to violate the typology of Christ. And the people of Israel were to know that. They didn't know that it prefigured Christ, but they were told this specifically because it looks forward to his work. Verse 26, Moreover, you shall not eat any blood in any of your dwellings, whether of bird or beast. This prohibition goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 9, right after the flood. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. The life is in the blood and therefore it is what the Lord used for the atonement of the people. This is made explicit in Leviticus chapter 17. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you to make upon the altar to make atonement for yourselves, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. In this verse now, it is explicitly forbidden eating any blood, not just that of the sacrificial animals where the fat was prohibited. Whether the creature was legally prescribed as a sacrifice or not, consuming its blood is forbidden. Having noted that, it specifically states only bird and beast. There are clean fish, which could be eaten by the Israelites, and nothing is specifically said about them and their blood, right? According to the law, there are also certain insects which could be eaten. Locusts, for example. In Matthew 3, 4, it's said of John the Baptist that his food was locusts and wild honey. The law speaks of neither the fish nor the insects specifically. However, the prohibition against eating blood stands, and therefore it must be assumed that the consumption of fish blood must fall under this prohibition. But it would be unrealistic to assume that someone was purposefully eating a locust in order to consume its blood. And to attempt to bleed out a locust would be an exercise in futility. Simple common sense and a right heart attitude towards the spirit of the law must be considered. But I'd like to see somebody try to bleed out a locust to see if it's possible, okay? From this, the New Testament continues with the prohibition during the early church. In Acts chapter 15, which contains the decree of the Council of Jerusalem, the warning against consuming blood is repeated. However, it is an admonition and it is not a command. Here's what it says. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now, why would they say it like that? It's because they know these are saved believers. If you're saved, you're saved. You cannot lose your salvation. And so they have to say it in a way that is understood that these things will not keep you from being saved, but they will 
do other things. They may offend Jews who are trying to come to the Lord, etc., etc. All of that has to be taken in context from the book of Acts. There are probably several reasons for issuing that edict at the time. And the prohibition itself is repeated in Acts chapter 21, verse 25. However, the prohibition is not repeated by Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, in his prescriptive letters. At the same time, the issue of food sacrificed to idols, which is also mentioned in both Acts 15 and Acts 21, is clarified by Paul, showing that it is a matter of conscience. But there is actually nothing wrong with the meat itself. As Paul never mentions the matter of blood, it must be inferred that no penalty for consuming blood in this dispensation can be brought against a believer. The early warning in Acts was given until the Holy Spirit had issued God's full counsel through the hands of the apostle. Now that it is received, we can see the reason for those earlier warnings which were given in Acts. Now you think, well, why would you want to eat blood? The thought of even putting a cup of blood in front of me makes me sick, right? But that's not the only blood that's being talked about. The blood which is in the meat of an animal has to be bled out of that animal. If it's not bled according to their prescribed laws, then the meat cannot be eaten, right? So eating one of those uh, steaks that people eat, what's it called, a prime rib or something, the one that's real bloody, that wouldn't be allowed. You know what I'm talking about. We had one over at that restaurant that one time. I'm like, oh, that's gross because I like my stuff well done, right? But the point is that the eating of blood is not forbidden in the New Testament. It's not something that you would want to do anyway, except in the meat, which is allowed not under the law, in other words. Verse 27, whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. There are an amazing number of commentaries from ancient sources on this prohibition. Some state that this is only concerned with the blood by which an animal was animated while living. In other words, one couldn't eat the blood which was bled out of a living animal nor could one eat the limb of an animal that was taken off of it while it was alive and the blood was pulsing through it, which seems like a stupid commentary, but people are trying to get around the law. Like I said, precept upon precept and law upon law. On and on these commentaries go. They build one precept upon another and they confuse the plain reading of the verse. No blood. When an animal was killed, it was to be slaughtered by cutting its neck and from there, the blood would come forth until the animal was drained of blood. Once that occurred, the meat would be considered free of blood. The prohibition stands that the blood was not to be eaten. The life is in the blood, and the blood was to be removed from the animal before it was eaten. It is simple. It is straightforward as a command. If it was not followed, the person was to be expelled from the community of Israel. The life is in the blood, and you are not to eat the blood. I have given that as atonement for you. Purge it from yourselves like a crimson flood. This is what I command you to do. In the shedding of the blood, the life is at its end. But if you consume the blood, what does that say of you? With what will the fracture between us now mend? Stop. Consider my words. Stop and think them through. From the guilty to the innocent, the transfer is made. And then the blood of the innocent is shed. Away ebbs the life. And in the act, there is a sin debt paid. And in that same act comes an ending of the strife. Thank God for atonement through an innocent substitute. On the day when to him my sin God did impute. And to me was granted his perfect righteousness. And so to God through him my soul shall ever bless. Our second thought today is the Lord's portion. is verses 28 through 38. 
Verse 28, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, another new thought still contained under the overall category of the peace offering is once again introduced. This section will specifically deal with the Lord's portion of the peace offering, which is inclusive of the portion which is given to Aaron and to his sons. As they are his designated representatives, and as the high priest is the mediator between the people and the Lord, the portion which goes to Aaron and his sons should rightfully be termed and considered as falling under the Lord's portion. Verse 29, speak to the children of Israel saying, he who offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. Now, when reading this, it might seem like the sacrifice is actually made somewhere else, but then the parts which are burned on the altar and the parts which belong to the priest alone were then carried to the sanctuary where they were then handed to the priest. That would not be a correct assumption. Instead, the instructions for the peace offering in verses 11 through 14 of this chapter mention things which are to accompany the sacrifice itself. These, along with the sacrifice, were to be brought to the Lord. The entire offering, animal and accompanying cakes of bread, is one actual offering. They were to be brought forth at one time, and the animal was to be slaughtered at the tent of meeting, as we know, on the north side of the altar, not at the residence of the offerer. As most of the animal is actually to be eaten by the offerer, it may have been considered more expedient to only bring the parts of the animal which were to be offered to the Lord, and not the whole thing. But this is incorrect. The law regards the entire offering as being offered to the Lord, and therefore the entire offering is to be brought before him. This becomes clearer with the next words. Verse 30, his own hands shall bring the offerings made by fire to the Lord. The one making the offering was required to bring the animal and the accompanying cakes with his own hands. This could <laughs> not be delegated to a servant or to a friend. It would thus show that the offering is personal. It is voluntary and that the offerer was happily joining together with the Lord in a feast. To delegate this to another person would completely negate the personal nature of the offering. Verse 30 continues, The fat with the breast he shall bring, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The word translated as breast here is chazeh. It comes from chazah, which means to see, because it is the part that is most seen when looking at the front of the animal. That in turn comes from a root word which indicates to gaze at or mentally to perceive as if in a vision. This particular part of the animal, along with the fat, was to now be waved before the Lord as a tenufah, or a wave offering. That comes from the word nuf, which means to wave to and fro. By making a waving motion, the breast would thus be before or in the face of the Lord. It was an acknowledgment of the omnipresence of his vision. Although from extra-biblical writings, Charles Ellicott describes how this offering was conducted at the time of Christ when it was brought by the offerer to the temple in Jerusalem. Here's what he says. The manner in which this rite was performed in the time of Christ was as follows. The offerer killed the sacrifice, and the priest sprinkled the blood. The victim was then flayed, and the officiating priest took out the innards, we've seen all of this in previous sermons, cutting the flesh into pieces, and separated the breast and the right shoulder, whereupon he laid the fat first upon the owner's hands, then the breast, then the shoulder above it, the two kidneys, and the call of the liver, all picturing Christ, if you remember that, um, above them again, and the bread above the whole. 
put his own hand under that of the offerer and waved it all before the Lord. Hereupon the priest salted the inwards and burned them on the altar. The breast and the right shoulder, as well as the bread waved before the Lord, were eaten by him and his brother priests, whilst the remainder of the flesh and the rest of the bread were eaten by the owner and his friends. If two persons brought a peace offering in partnership, one of them waved for both. And if a woman brought it, the waving was performed by the officiating priest, since women were not allowed to wave except in the offering of a jealousy and a Nazarite. Verse 31, and the priest shall burn the fat on the altar. The fat alone was to be burned as if the smoke of incense upon the altar to the Lord. As we've already seen several times, this is that part which reflects the inner qualities of Christ, which are offered to the Lord as a sweet-smelling savor. Verse 31 going on, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his son's. This most prominent part, which signifies vision or perceiving a thing, was reserved for the priests who are the mediators of the covenant. Verse 32, also the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. Along with the breast, the right thigh was also designated as the priest's portion. The shok or thigh can actually mean thigh, shoulder, hip, or leg. It comes from a word meaning overflow and thus abundant. Thus it is the abundant area of meat on an appendage like my biceps. As it is the right thigh, it signifies the honorable side. But further, the thigh reflects the power and the strength of the animal. In all that which is abundant, powerful, and most honorable is what is being seen here. As you might have noticed, the breast was offered as a tenufa or wave offering, whereas the right thigh is offered as a terumah, or a heave offering. As explained before, and which I know every person here certainly remembers perfectly, the terumah comes from the word rum, which means high or exalted. Thus one can see the idea of something being offered up, like an oblation. The breast, which indicates seeing and vision, and thus the acquisition of wisdom, is waved in acknowledgement of God's omnipresence. And the right thigh, which indicates strength and honor, is lifted in acknowledgement of God's omnipotence. Both then speak of Christ's mediatory abilities, which are acknowledged in the waving and the heaving of the different parts. He is the wisdom and power of God for his people, and from whom all knowledge and all strength is derived. The pictures are perfectly seen in the offerings and how they are presented. Verse 33, he among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right thigh for his part. Whichever priest was the one who handled the blood of the offering was given the right thigh as his portion. The word for part here is mana. It is a noun from a verb which means to number or to count. Thus it is an assigned portion. This honorable part of the offering which was first heaved to the Lord, is reckoned to him for having conducted the rite of the offerings before the Lord. Verse 34, For the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering I have taken from the children of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons from the children of Israel by a statute forever. The term lechak olam, or a statute forever, signifies to the vanishing point. It is a term which indicates until the end of a covenant. Whenever the covenant is fulfilled, it is no longer in effect. But something must fulfill it. 
And so if we look at this verse with a prophetic and a pictorial view in relation to Christ, we could make a statement of what is being said here and apply it to Christ. A sacrifice is being made as a peace offering, and a portion of it belongs to the high priest and to his sons. The breast, ultimately representing wisdom, and the right thigh, ultimately representing strength, honor, and power, are given to the priest from the children of Israel. The whole verse points to Christ who came from the children of Israel and who is, according to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24, the wisdom and power of God. He who possesses these qualities is our high priest before God. In fulfillment of the old covenant, he continues the picture in the new. And so lechak olam, or a statute forever, simply moves the statement in picture to Christ in reality. Who would ever think this while reading through these verses in a cursory manner? I mean, you just wouldn't do it. And yet when taken word by word, the person of Jesus Christ literally shouts out from these ancient words compiled by Moses as the Lord spoke them to him. Verse 35, this is the consecrated portion for Aaron and his sons from the offerings made by fire to the Lord. The words in Hebrew here are variously translated, and so they should be explained. Translations will say the portion, the rightful share, that which is consecrated to, the anointing, the consecrated portion, the allotment, the anointing portion, the share, and so on and on. The Hebrew word here is mishcha, which means ointment or to be anointed. The cognate word in Aramaic and Assyrian carries the sense of to measure. And so the verse could be translated either as anointing or portion without doing any harm to the words in Hebrew, and at the same time, they would then include a play on the other sense of the word. The translation of the New King James Version of consecrated portion, it gives you both sense of the words. It gives a very good sense of the intent behind what is being said right here. They were masterful in what they did. It is the anointing of the Aaronic priesthood that allows the portion to be received by the priests. It is consecrated to them alone from the offerings made by fire to the Lord. This is then explained in the second half of the verse. Verse 35 continues, On the day when Moses presented them to minister to the Lord as priests. The name of Moses is inserted into this verse. It is not in the original. The Hebrew simply says, In the day brought near them to serve as priests to Jehovah. Moses did present them, but the Lord called them to be presented. The Hebrew words leave out the nominative. It is a statement of action which does not specifically mention the one doing the action. Verse 36, the Lord commanded this to be given to them by the children of Israel on the day that he anointed them by a statute forever throughout their generations. This verse here sums up the requirements from beginning to end. On the day of their anointing, until the day that the priesthood would be annulled in Christ, the requirements stood. In this, the Lord was providing for the priests of Israel, while at the same time he was giving prophetic pictures of Christ to come, who would be the fulfillment of what the generations of priests only prefigured. Verse 37, this is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the consecrations, and the sacrifice of the peace offering. This verse here is truly to be an overall statement of pretty much every single thing that we have seen so far in the book of Leviticus. However, the order of the sacrifices is different between those first described in earlier Leviticus and those of the supplemental laws for conducting them, which were given after that. 
Therefore, this verse more significantly forms a concluding statement to that which was described since verse 6-8. All of those verses reflect the order of the offerings as described here with the exception of the consecrations. This includes those things which were described in Exodus concerning the consecration of Aaron and his sons. And it also includes the duties of Aaron, which were described in verses 6, 19 through 22. As a point of theology, which actually bears on the New Testament, these consecrations come from the Hebrew noun milu, meaning setting or installing. That in turn comes from the verb male, which means to fill. When we speak in the New Testament of being filled with the Spirit, we are in essence being consecrated to act. When Paul says to be filled with the Spirit, such as in Ephesians 5 verse 18, it is in the passive voice. What that means is that we are not actively, but we are passively filled with the Spirit. Because we receive the Spirit when we receive Jesus Christ, we will never get more of the Spirit. We have all that we will ever receive in His fullness the very moment that we call on Him. However, the Spirit can get more of us. This is the passive filling which Paul speaks of. And this is why Charismatics and Pentecostals are so hugely wrong in their theology. As a married man, I'm never going to get more married, but my poor wife can get more of me as I yield to her. As a believer in Christ, I will never, never, never get more of the Spirit, but he can fill me as I yield to him. When we say male oti, or fill me, it must be based on our yielding, which comes through praise of God, prayer to God, participation with the people of God, proffering thanks to God, and pondering God's word. It does not come through pounding on drums, prancing about in church, playing as if super religious, or pontificating about one's spiritual prowess. We have the Spirit. Let him have us. In Christ, the Lord has consecrated us, and so let us consecrate ourselves so that we can then be consecrated to act. Verse 38, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai. It is not on Mount Sinai, but rather at Mount Sinai. This was explained in Leviticus 1, verse 1, with the words, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Moses, saying, Moses was in the tent of meeting, receiving his instructions from the mouth of the Lord who dwelt between the cherubim. Mount Sinai is in the same place as Mount Horeb, but the name Sinai is used because it is given in anticipation of the cross of Christ. Sinai means bush of the thorn, and the names of the location are given in connection with the redemptive workings of God in Christ, which is looking forward to the cross. As all of these offerings look forward to his sacrifice, the name Sinai is specifically given in this final verse of the long section, which concerns the details of the offerings. What I'm trying to tell you here is that Sinai is used sometimes, Horeb is used sometimes, and each time he uses those words, it is specifically for his purposes to show us something about redemptive history. When Sinai is used, it is pointing to the redemptive workings of God in Christ. Verse 38 finishes with these words. On the day when he commanded the children of Israel to offer their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Again, in the final clause of the chapter, the name Sinai is used. This time it says, Bemidbar Sinai, or in the wilderness of Sinai. The word midbar means desert, but it comes from the word davar, meaning word. The connection between the two is that cattle are driven in an open place 
by the word of the one driving them. The Lord is commanding the children of Israel concerning these many offerings made to him as they are driven to the cross of Christ. They are in a dry and barren land, but the water of the word is what is intended to lead them to the abundance which overflows from him. The Lord does not waste words. When he says something like this, it is intended to give us a picture of something else, and so it does. This final thought of the chapter is intended to get us to realize that everything that we have looked at is meant to drive us to the Lord who has fulfilled each and every type and picture that we have seen in these past chapters. Although there will be more sacrifices detailed in the pages ahead, and although there will be a ton of rules and statutes to govern the lives of the people, right now, at the end of these many offerings, is a great time for us to stop and think about how blessed we are to not have to live under these requirements. Isn't that so? Every time I read through the law, and especially through the book of Leviticus, I find myself thanking the Lord that I am on the other side of the cross. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem to fellowship with the Lord. We don't have to bring in an offering in order to do so. And we don't have to worry if we have checked off every detail in the long list of details to ensure that all was done properly. Jesus has done all of it for us. All of it. Everything that we've looked at has been intended to lead us directly to Jesus and his fulfillment of it all. Thank God for Jesus Christ who has done exactly that. But Matthew Henry, commenting on the last three verses of this chapter, says something that every person here should take to heart. He says, Solemn acts of religious worship are not things we may do or not do at our pleasure. It is at our peril if we omit them. An observance of the laws of Christ cannot be less necessary than the laws of Moses. Because of Christ doing it all for us, we should be more willing, not less, to be obedient to what he has commanded us. He has given us the Great Commission. He has written through the hand of Paul a long and impressive list of things that we are to do and things we are not to do. And he has spoken openly to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Let us not be slack in doing what we should be doing for the Lord Jesus. And above all, he asks us to come to him. This is the first step of obedience for the lost soul. Until we come to him and receive him, we cannot be pleasing to God. And so as I do each week, allow me just a moment to tell you what you need to do in order to be saved in case you've never made that call. God has made it so easy. He says, very simply, if you receive the Lord Jesus, if you accept what he has done, pictured by all of these ancient sacrifices, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what God wants you to do, is to say, I cannot save myself. I can't meet the demands of this law, certainly, and I can't work my way up to heaven. It's too high. He's infinitely far away from me, but Christ can because he came from the Father, and so his infinite self can put his hand on his father and his finite human self can put his hand on you and he can say, I will be the bridge. Just trust in me, believe in me and I will reconcile you to your heavenly father. That's all that God asks of you. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What an offer. What a, what a gift. So if you are watching today and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, call out and be reconciled to God. 
All of this stuff that God put in the Old Testament is there for a reason. It's to lead us to a knowledge of what he was going to do in his son. And then he came and he did it. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Our closing verse today comes from Galatians chapter 3. It's verses 22 through 25. But the Spirit has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would be afterward revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. And I'm talking about the Old Testament, not the New. We're no longer under the Old Testament. It is annulled. It is set aside. It is obsolete. But it is profitable in a million different ways to lead us to a greater understanding of Jesus. And that's why we go through the law of Moses. Next week is Leviticus 8. It's verses 1 through 13. Oh me, oh my, it will be fun. It's entitled The Consecration of the Aaronic Priesthood. That'll be our 11th Leviticus sermon. And I'll tell you this, after getting done with my smiling and laughing at Jay every week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today is called The Mediator's Duties. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these are the words he was then relaying, speak to the children of Israel saying, you shall not eat any facts of fat of ox or sheep or goat and the fat of an animal that dies naturally and the fat of what is torn by wild beasts. Please take careful note. It may be used in any other way, but you shall by no means eat it. So to you I say, for whoever eats the fat of the animal of which men offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, The person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. So shall it be according to this word. Moreover, you shall not eat any blood in any of your dwellings, whether of bird or beast. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people, from the greatest to the least. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these are the words he was then relaying. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, he who offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering according to my word. His own hand shall bring the offerings made by fire to the Lord, as you have now heard. The fat with the breast he shall wave, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his sons. They are the priest's things. Also the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. He among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat also shall have the right thigh for his part. To him it shall go, for the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering too I have taken from the children of Israel from the sacrifice of their peace offerings as I instruct you. And I have given them to Aaron the priest and to the sons from the children of Israel by a statute forever. These instructions to you I now tell. This is the consecrated portion for Aaron and his sons from the offerings made by fire to the Lord on the day when Moses presented them to minister to the Lord as priests, according to his word. The Lord commanded this to be given to them by the children of Israel chosen from among the nations on the day that he anointed them by a statute forever throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering too. 
the consecrations and the sacrifice of the peace offering, the law which the priests were instructed to do, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai, on the day when he commanded the children of Israel to offer their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. These instructions he thus to them did tell. Peace with God, full and complete, has come to us through the blood of Jesus. In him there is fellowship so sweet, marvelous things he has done for us. And so, O Lord, to you we give our heartfelt praise, and to you, O God, we shall sing out for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for these marvelous verses which tidy up everything that we've looked at in the past many, many sermons and the past ch chapters. We thank you that there is logic, there is order, and there is harmony to keep us from erring in so many ways. And yet, the people after they were given did err in many ways, adding rule upon rule, precept upon precept, and they forgot their love of you and the spirit and intent of the law. Help us not to fall into that in our hearts, Lord, but to be obedient to your word and be obedient to the spirit of it. Help us, Lord, so that we don't make these type of mistakes, but we pursue you, we love you, we cherish you, and thank you that we are on this side of Calvary's cross where we can look back at these things and see what the people went through in anticipation of your coming. And when you stepped out of eternity, how you fulfilled all of them for us, how great and glorious you are. Thank you for this. And Lord, you heard the long list of names at the beginning of the uh, church of people with all kinds of afflictions and people that aren't with us because of this or that, or praises as well, certainly praises for Lothar and, uh, Lothar and uh, his health. We're thankful for that. Lord, we thank you for all these things. We pray for these things. We petition you for them. And we know that everything is in your capable hands and you're directing the ages as you determine. So help us keep that in mind as the world falls apart around us. And we love you, Lord. We thank you for all you've done for us and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.